Hello, I'm Susanna Tresillian, and before we hear this week's podcast, we just wanted to point you in the direction of our sponsor, Squarespace. For more information on building beautiful websites, go to squarespace.com. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. This week, I've been handed the reins so as to tell the story of my journey to the refugee camp that exists just across the channel in France, known as The Jungle. This is a slightly different podcast to normal, as it looks at books, but very much through the prism of literature, performance, art and experience. There is a library, which I visit, of course, but much of the recording took place around and about, exploring the camp, meeting the people. By serendipitous quirk of fate, I was travelling with members of the Belarus Free Theatre and Pussy Riot, so we'll hear from them later too. My story, though, began with a phone call from a playwright friend of mine. Did I know that there was a place that had been constructed in the middle of the refugee camp, called the Good Chance Theatre, where people were given space to create, write poetry, make music, be safe? It sounded like a place I should discover which is how I found myself just before Christmas. Yo! Yo, yo, yo! Walking into the Calais refugee camp to spend three days, hosted by the Joes at the Good Chance Theatre and Mary Jones of Jungle Books, finding out about the impact of books, storytelling and creativity for the refugees in this very bleak place. And it is bleak. Though not without its inevitably human moments. Hello. Every theatre needs a cat. <laughs> but first, some background. The Guardian has reams of articles about the politics of the situation, which I won't go into here. Though, of course, this is a particularly acute and dreadful moment in their history, and I do urge you to find out more. The chaotic forced demolition by the French government of much of the camp in early 2016 renders this podcast unintentionally an historic snapshot a record of the jungle as was. My job, however, when I went there before Christmas, was to try to look past the horrors, the inequality, the hardship, the statistics we hear about, to find the women, men, children, people who are many of them educated professionals, who read, who write, who would love nothing more than to put aside the violent reality of their current situation and to share a conversation about their literary history, loves and recommendations. Or indeed, just to help them process what they're living through. Everyone needs to express something. You know, people's stories, you know, they're still happening. They're in the middle of a journey and it's a difficult journey. And they've come from around the world, from so many different places, and they've come across oceans and deserts, and then they find themselves here, and they need to talk about it. We, we put that alongside food and shelter, actually. In a situation like this, you can be sat in your, in your shelter, eating a meal a day, which the state provides here, but what's going on in your head is really important, and you need to be able to find an angle in your own brain to let yourself feel decent and um, that's what we're trying to do. The other point I feel I should make here is that this podcast features the voices of far fewer refugees living there than I intended. At the time when I went, 
Winter was descending and a bitter cold setting in. And a theory had run rife through the camp that any media exposure, photos, name checks or interviews, would lead to your asylum application being denied. This is, I'm told, categorically untrue. However, when you have so little to hope for, why would you risk it? However, it meant that many warm and interesting conversations dried up into an apologetic silence as soon as my microphone appeared. But it shows the courage of those who took the risk to speak with me on a subject they felt so passionately about, the universal language of books. Harry Potter. <laughs> and lastly, mine is an inevitably subjective view, but a truthful one. In October 2015, two British playwrights, Joe Murphy and Joe Robertson, travelled across to France to volunteer at the camp. The plan was to stay two days and see what they could do. A theatre director who'd already visited assured them they could be useful. Joe Murphy takes up the story. What he said was that people wanted to tell their story, which was a bit of a shock to me. I thought, God, why, why, would, why would people want to do that? Like, because, you know... I'm sure that's the last thing they want to do, but, you know. And we came over not with any particular ideas, and we just listened, and people did. And, you know, we, we stayed with um, some Kuwaiti people, part of their, the Badoon tribe, and they welcomed us, and they set up a tent for us, and they, uh, they cooked for us, and they sang to us. They welcomed us, and we, we stayed for a week. We went, we're just going to stay for two days, and we just felt welcomed, and we thought... If this, is, if this is the way people are responding, then, then maybe there's something we could do. We thought briefly about writing a play, but I thought, God, what the, what's that going to do? You know, so we didn't write a play. Uh, we th but we did think, wouldn't it be great to have somewhere where that could keep happening and the, and the people themselves could do that? And we've been up and running for nearly three months, and we work with the support of amazing, amazing theatres, the Royal Court, the Young Vic, and theatres up and down the country um, and this is, a, this is a united effort I think this is uh, a determination on the part of, of everyone in theatre just go no let's help here because we can, this is, this is what theatre can do. Historically you know theatres have always been places of, of refuge places to meet and congregate central parts of, of towns and cities and this theatre is a central part of, of this camp and, yeah, is that place of refuge, we hope. Joe took me for a tour of the camp, grateful for my wellies as we slipped our way along the main road, with its corrugated iron shops and restaurants, its open-air water points, porter cabins with doors flapping open, and the different areas of the world represented there. You walk past Palestine to get to Sudan, which is next to Kurdistan. It ended with the grand finale, the Good Chance Theatre itself. We were welcomed by a group of kids outside and then walked in to find the theatre cat playing hide-and-seek with some young men and preparations for the evening's events clattering on in the background. Can you describe where we are standing on this cold and wet and windy night? So this, um, this is a theatre of hope. Um, and the actual structure is called a, uh, it's a geodetic dome 
and is the strongest temporary structure in the world, apparently. It's a warm place, it's a, it's a safe place, and everyone who comes in here um, gets a really firm handshake and a hug and uh, a welcome, because it's theirs. One of the things that's uh, shocked even me and Joe has been uh, the different nationalities, the number. I mean, there's so many nationalities represented here. There's about 15 um, countries um, that people have come from. Um, I think uh, one of the real dominant narratives about this whole situation is about Syria, obviously. We all, we all understand, basically, that there's a situation in Syria, but there are also many, many other countries, and actually there aren't that many Syrians here. Um, there may be 300, 400, whereas Sudanese, many Sudanese people here and many Afghans. But this, from the very beginning, has been a place to learn about each other. It's been a place where everyone can come and they can sing a song from Syria or from Sudan and the Syrians will listen to the Sudanese song and go, oh, okay, that's all right. What about this, though? Yeah. And it's, it's been one of the best things um, was people coming up um, after a little while and saying that it would help them learn about other people. And we see now people come in and they're, you know, arm in arm with uh, a Syrian person and it's a Sudanese man and you just go, oh, wow, wow that, that's great. You mentioned that people are writing. Where does that start? What are they writing? There are some amazing writers here, is the first thing to say. Really beautiful uh, poets, really distinctive voices who are trying to tackle this situation, uh, what, they're, what they're caught up in. How does it start? It's, it started for us back when we didn't really know quite how we were going to run this theatre. We started just putting words out and just... we. Came about with this word hope keeps coming back, but the hope was the, I think the first cue that we gave to people, and they just went, and they started writing. Just people came in and started doing things in all different forms, you know, prose, poetry, and then some people started after we had conversations with them to, to try and write conversations, which was a really interesting thing. And then we started to develop these into, I suppose you'd call them writing workshops, but really just mental exercises, I suppose. And we, we did this uh, one which was amazing, where uh, we got people to write out a hope. And then we just asked why, 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 why? Until it reached a crazy end point, which felt like the end of that. And it's all you know, aimed towards allowing people a different angle on on the situation. That's what that's what books, that's what literature can do. That's what it should do. That's its purpose. You know, just because I think if we're constantly trapped in our own brains, that's the worst place to be. You need help from other people, and you need help from uh, from words and from ideas and books. Are you noticing different styles and different approaches? to writing from different areas of the world or is it is there a real universality uh, good question we're not noticing styles yet what we are noticing is uh, areas so a lot of people are, are talking about points 
on the, along the journey. So some people are talking about home, um, some people are talking about now, you know, the jungle, what is this place, and some people are imagining the future. You know, we have beautiful pieces. I remember uh, Abdullah, who's from Afghanistan, and it's the most touching things. He always used to write about his garden back in Afghanistan. Um, it's just... Now, why I found that so so beautiful, probably because in my head, I don't know, I didn't think there'd be gardens in Afghanistan or something. Um, but I think certainly you you notice that people uh, are writing about somewhere along this this journey point, and then obviously people are beginning to to find um, uh, different forms um, to write in. People, you know, people are really uh, uh, beginning to experiment. Are any of the writers, do you think they've done it before, they're going to do it again, yeah. they are doing yeah. it? So there, there, are, there are artists here, you know, there are serious uh, people of craft, not just writers, but also, you know, professional musicians. You know, we've got people who are actually really uh, renowned in countries like Iran. As for writers, I mean, off the top of my head, uh, Mohammed is an absolutely stunning poet. Um, and is a very serious writer. I met and spoke with Mohammed, but he asked me not to interview him for the reasons I mentioned before. It was Yalba night, an Iranian festival, the longest night and the shortest day of the year, and the Good Chance Theatre had arranged for a film viewing of The Colour of Paradise, directed by Majid Majidi. As the tent filled with people eager to congregate and watch the film, I was introduced to Jamal from Sudan. He'd written a very successful theatre scene for the weekly Hope Show that takes place every Saturday night. I asked him what it was about. It's five character scene. Very, you know, kind of hard times. They're facing you know, hard times and they're trying to overcome the hard times and seeking for even a better life, better future. By the end of the day, one of them is going to accomplish his dreams and his rest, still waiting for the chance, and they will get it one day. It's about patience. Be patient and to believe that you will make it one day. It might not be today or tomorrow, but will be one day, that is for sure. And how does writing help you? Occasionally I used to write. Some stuff, whenever they came across my mind, I really like to write them down. Uh, it will be great if you try to exercise writing and doing some artistic things. It was an otherworldly sight of 150 men hunched up on low benches, huddled up against the cold, silhouetted by the dim light of the projector, the relief of mindless entertainment relaxing their faces. I left them that evening watching the film about the young blind boy and his ashamed father and drove back to Centreville, where I sat in my room and tried to make sense of the day. The next morning dawned bright and early, and I was being joined by my friends from the Belarus Free Theatre, but I'd meet them there. First, I had an appointment of my own to make, with Mary Jones from Jungle Books, the camp library. 
She had promised to give me a tour of the library and very generously offered me a lift into the camp. Khalistan, the mostly Afghan area where you've got lots of shops and restaurants that people have set up from absolutely nothing and now they're quite flourishing businesses. And then we can just walk through to the library. So this is the original little library. Then here, because we started doing lessons in here as well. It was much too small, so we expanded. And now we have like two lessons going on at the same time uh, in this space. And now we've got uh, Wi-Fi, we've got internet, so now it'll be full of uh, people on the computers. There's uh, Mohammed, who's our poet since he's been here. We call him Shakespeare because he's the only person in the whole world I know who actually enjoys reading Shakespeare. <laughs> he's got the full works in his tent and the, the sonnets as well. And he just wrote, we borrow the hearts of nomadic birds who don't recognise borders. Both, you know, she just... So. You, want, you want poetry? poetry? English? In which yes. language? In English? Yeah. <clears throat> we have poems in... Persian. Yeah, we've got lots of poems in different oh. languages mm. here. <laughs> there we go. Persian, yeah. Yeah? So can you describe where we are right now? Well, at the moment we're in the, the original library, which is the size of a slightly expanded garden shed, made by the refugees out of wood and plastic, and lined inside with uh, very nice curtains from a French chateau that a friend managed to get from a, a yard sale, so that makes it nice and light. Uh, the roof, which nearly blew off, is held down by uh, great big boulders <laughs> and bits of string, so uh, hopefully it's not going to blow off tonight. And uh, just surrounding almost floor to ceiling are some makeshift shelves filled with books, very kindly donated from... Uh, uh, lots of very generous people and also publishers and, and bookshops that have you know, helped us to fill our shelves. Tell me about how this all began and how you came here. It probably began with uh, feelings of uh, total anger and uh, disgust uh, driving past uh, the, the camp and looking down and seeing what's a very, very bad shantytown in the middle of developed country in Europe with people living under black plastic and at the time when I first came here absolutely no running water no toilets uh, no electricity and uh, a complete disgrace and just feeling I wanted to do something and thinking well what can I do or maybe teach English so just coming and thinking I'd start just doing a few English lessons and along the way kind of emptied my bookshelves, brought them along to a little space and it just kind of grew from there really, just realised that people were really keen to read and 
and in fact just kind of trying to make a little space that's something like a mix between a library and a, a living space where people can just sit down and have five minutes of normality in a in a, an environment of total chaos. What do you think the importance of having all of these books around? Why is that important to people here when life is so, as you say, so chaotic? Well, I think it's it's a sticking plaster, but I think it's a sticking plaster that can help people sometimes to escape mentally from a very, very difficult situation, whether that's trying to forget maybe the difficult journey they've spent coming here, whether or not it's just the, the kind of total frustration of being left here, the difficulties of life, and maybe just, yeah, five minutes of, of thinking of something completely different, I think is, uh, is very important. Sometimes it's, it's um, because everyone here are just so keen to learn, they're, they're just sort of enthusiasm to be doing something and that just being frustrated. I think at least by being able to learn a language or improve skills, keep up with sometimes very, very high level of studies by being able to read books on physics and applied mathematics, etc. You know, it's, it's, it's a case of there's a lot of educated like doctors, so we've got very popular sort of medical dictionaries and things like that where people might be qualified in their country and hopefully when they get to whichever country they're going to settle in they'll be able to be very, very useful members of, the, of society. So it's, it's just... You know, people actually preparing for a future or distracting themselves or, or learning a language. It's the, the other idea of, of just having a space where people can come where it's a bit warm and chat to people, like-minded people. We take it for granted. It's, it's a total luxury to be able to sit somewhere warm and dry, upright, not in a tiny little tent on a wet mattress. It's kind of... Uh, <laughs> luxury is relative. The room is full of people reading all sorts. I can see someone reading in... Arabic and another reading Arabic poetry, people reading dictionaries and picture books. Can you describe a little bit what you've got here in the library and how it's useful, what people are really drawn to? Probably the, the, um, the shelves at the back, which are full of dictionaries of as many languages as we can find are probably the most useful because it's even if people are not necessarily wanting to translate it might just be communicating with someone else sitting at the table next to them coming from a different a different country and trying to explain something so it's really nice for kind of the inter-community mix of people we get in here we're really interested in in, in other people's stories what they're doing so the dictionaries are really handy so yeah so we've got um, a real variety of novels and and then we've got quite a selection of We've got books about how to start your own business, which have been, in fact, quite useful, and uh, actually people who have taken them, and you, know, you see them with their own business, so it's, it's quite, uh, quite funny to see where that leads. We've got books about different countries and, and the situation. A lad was reading about the history of Ethiopia. He's probably from Ethiopia. It's probably interesting for him to read it from an outside view of, of the history of his country. You know, it's, it's uh, completely varied. Then if you go around, we've got quite a lot of academic books. There have been some universities that have donated us a really nice selection of academic books. Um, we've got the guide to CV in French. If somebody wants to write their CV, we've got guides for writing in, in uh, CVs in English. And then we've got language learning books. Most of those are now in the language learning space, but we've got a lot of language learning books, which are really obviously very useful. 
Well, and then a lot of graded readers, which are perfect because people can then choose the level of language to suit them, and then just a big selection of, of, uh, of classics and, and novels that they can select from, and quite a lot of children's books. In fact, a lot of children's books. <laughs> Looking around, particularly at the fiction area, I can see Ruth Rendell, Adrian Mole, Bill Bryson, Dan Brown. Are these names that people know already, are you finding, or is this all a completely new literary um, world? People know, people know Dan Brown, they know Stephen King, and then more the classic, John le Carre, obviously Agatha Christie, uh, but not necessarily the authors that we uh, might be very familiar with at home. Have you had specific requests of books? I have had specific requests of books. Uh, the last one that somebody asked me to get specifically was about some Russian general in like the 1890s or something. <laughs> so, uh, that's it. I was very happy with it when I, when I ordered it from Amazon. And, uh, but anyway, so... <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really specific. <laughs> uh -huh, exactly. So, and we, we, we have got a... Um, an Amazon wish list, which is not really up and running, but hopefully now we've got Wi-Fi, that will be something that readers, the members of the library, can actually, when they really want a book, will hopefully be able to go on there and actually request a book that they really want, rather than depending on the goodwill and the shelf clearing of uh, <laughs> the good people of, of Calais or, or England. I know that people have been very generous donating books. Are there particular books that are particularly useful um, and that you need here? Dictionaries are always, always useful because it's really nice that people can go away with a dictionary and it can be their, you know, especially pocket-sized one, in their pocket, wherever they end up, whichever country they go to, they've got their pocket dictionary and, and that's always useful. Obviously, in the languages of the camp, for example, Amharic and, and Kurdish as two Kurdish languages, I wouldn't be able to quote them, but, you know, sort of languages where there's a lot of people in the camp, Farsi dictionaries, Dari dictionaries... And also things like we had, you know, like um, a picture dictionaries in French, English and Arabic and things like that are incredibly useful. Any reading books in any of the languages that people have come from, it's nice so that people are able to read for pleasure rather than sort of maybe struggling through a language that they're not as fluent in. So there are various different entities here at the camp, church, theatre, there are now shops and, and restaurants even... Do people find this a special place? I think a lot of people do, and for me it's maybe... What's nice about it is maybe a bit of calm in the chaos. Sometimes I think people just need somewhere quiet and where, you know, it's sometimes quiet is, uh, is nice. <laughs> well, aside from the churning generator in the background, it, it, is, it is a real place of community and calm, it feels, at the moment. Yeah, well, thank God there is a churning generator because <laughs> that's one of the... If you'd have come here on any other day of the week, you might have found a non-churning generator, pitch black, uh, no light, so, you know, thank God it's churning. <laughs> I noticed on the board a picture with a poem written under it. It was written by the librarian Nakib, who reads it out, voiced up by Richard Lee. Life's story is like shared buttons... Life story is like shirt buttons. If you do up the first button in the wrong hole, you will do up all the buttons wrong. You will do up all the buttons wrong. Adversities in this. When you reach the end, you will know that it is wrong. 
you will know that is wrong. Who wrote that? Me, by writing librarian. <laughs> librarian. <laughs> and you learned English three months ago? Yes, three months. About three months, yes. Why did you write this? Uh, yes, but life is like this. And off he went, called to help someone find another book. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you have many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design, so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands, and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com guardian. I went back to the theatre and found a theatre workshop in full throng. One of the participants was a Kurdish boy called Brua, who spoke with me while they were taking a break. Yeah. And where are you from? Kirkuk, in Kurdistan. Yeah. Sometimes Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. And sometimes book for study. <laughs> what do you like about Harry Potter? Everything. Everything, the glass, the hair, everything. Lily. You travelled very yeah. far. Were you able to read while you were travelling? No. Never. Do you read now that you're here? Because there's no, a library. Sometime. Tell me about the library. I don't know, just sometimes I go to the jungle book to read a book. Yeah. Why is reading important? Because... <laughs> Difficult question. Tell me why because sometimes your sad it make you feel better, and it's good for mind to teach more. It was time for a cup of tea, and Natalia Caliada and I went to find a corner in the camp to have a chat. She's co-founder and co-artistic director of the Belarus Free Theatre an astonishing theatre company I've been privileged to work with on numerous occasions. Founded ten years ago as a response to the dictatorship in Belarus, they've been an insistent and unyielding political and artistic thorn in the side of the government. So much so that for the past five years, the three co-artistic directors have been political refugees themselves, exiled from Belarus and based in the UK at the Young Vic Theatre in London. Two of the directors, Nikolai Kaledzin and Natalia Kalyada, were here in Calais to support the work of the Joes, and brought along their friend and fellow supporter, Masha Loikina, from Pussy Riot. Hello, my name is Natalia Kalyada. I'm co-founding artistic director of Belarus Free Theatre, and I'm currently in Calais uh, with uh, guys from Good Chance Calais. As a refugee herself, I wanted to speak with her about the importance of literature when one is pulled away by a greater political force from an original identity to a new one as a person in transit, a refugee. 
How important a part did literature play in her life before she was exiled? I think I, I, I'm coming from that kind of a country and the world as uh, Eastern Europe and in my particular case, uh, Belarus. Uh, but I was born when the Soviet Union still existed. It was uh, uh, a meaning of life because uh, living under communist dictatorship, it meant one particular thing that... Uh, you are brainwashed all the time, and this is exactly what is happening now in Belarus. Uh, let's imagine uh, Svetlana Alexievich, uh, Nobel Prize winner, finally, because of who, like, uh, people started to Google where Belarus is, uh, is not in any books for schools, uh, so she is not published there, and uh, it's exactly coming to that point when um, a written word and what uh, writers do, it's uh, so meaningful, especially in such countries like ours. But then, living in the UK for the last five years, I think it's not especially for such countries like ours. I think it's so important for people who live under democracy uh, to read even more challenging books in order not to get used to a luxury of freedoms and uh, democracy and challenge themselves all the time. Do you find that your reading and what you read has changed in the last five years? I think it's, it, it has changed uh, even earlier. I think uh, when we started to create uh, Belarus Free Theatre, um, it got to the point that I stopped uh, reading uh, fiction uh, because uh, it became clear that uh, real life is more interesting than any fictional story. It's sometimes said that literature and reading and is a way for humans to learn and um, feel empathy about other people and other people's situations. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think, and here I will come back uh, like to an example of uh, Svetlana Alexievich, and we know each other for many years, and uh, it's uh, the way she writes, it's very close to us, because uh, she's uh, interested in uh, real uh, people, and I think it's uh, that particular victory uh, of that particular way of presenting uh, novels. And this is the first time when it's given to a writer that uh, choose uh, a documentary way of presenting real uh, stories of people. She was a journalist. And uh, there were different talks after it was announced that uh, she got a Nobel Prize, whether it's given to a journalist. But she's a novelist. But her experience based on her journalism, because she spent time in Afghanistan, she spent time like in Chernobyl, uh, doing absolutely unique uh, work. But then she managed to get that understanding how journalists write and to transform that into uh, novels. And uh, I think it's like that particular way when people could see a reality 
in a written word, this one really um, kind of challenge people and give them a possibility to reflect, give them a possibility to share or agree or disagree, but she talks about the reality. And I think this is exactly what is interesting for me. The theatre that you create, um, a lot of that is based on real-life stories in a theatrical format, in the same way that Svetlana... Alexievich. Alexievich, in the way that she does as well, using the novel. Is there any link between that being a Belarusian response to not having a freedom of speech and a freedom of expression? I don't really know whether it's connected to us in terms of from where we come. It might be, but if we go back like to Anton Chekhov, uh, who was blamed, who faced horrible scandals when uh, he wrote his plays that he is using language of uh, ordinary people and uh, it was something unacceptable in Russia of that time. But like, uh, if we talk about Shakespeare, he was new writing uh, playwright of his time because the way he wrote it, it, it was just like absolutely fantastic. And how he deconstructed uh, lives of different people, it's uh, absolutely fascinating. And um, so I believe uh, it's not connected to a specific uh, territory uh, from where people come, but I think it's uh, connected to a specific layer of uh, artists who I believe consider themselves contemporary artists. And uh, it's that particular responsibility of contemporary artists to talk real life. Natalia world-famous and celebrated for her work with their underground theatre company, showed me her identity card. Under her name and photo is written the word, Refugee. On Freedom, a collection of essays on the concept of freedom and commissioned by the Belarus Free Theatre, is published by Oberon and out now. Later on that afternoon, I trekked across the muddy camp to a group of larger tents, canvas buffeting around in the wind. I was there to meet with Hossein, an Iranian I'd met earlier when he'd helped me with some translation. My first question was, are you a bookworm? In all of my life, I'm just reading books, and my friends say me, you crazy. Enjoy your life, I say I enjoy books. Why do you love books? Because I'm crazy. <laughs> I love books because I have more information from these books. I, I learn more things about books and more things to history. And I can see the future because I know the history is always loop. All history is a repeat, repeat, repeat. And don't anything change in the environment. It's a melancholic view of history repeating itself that I heard time and time again in the camp. It seemed that access to literature that can perhaps counter that by opening minds and broadening hearts 
is a human right that most people value as highly as a warm place of refuge. His favorite book came as a surprise to me. The Clown, also known as The Joker, written by East German Nobel Prize winner Heinrich Böll in 1963. The draw for Hussein was the freedom the Joker had, to be an artist, to think, and to challenge the world with his thoughts, and crucially, not to get killed for it. I love this book. Because about uh, this Joker, and he's an artist, and his girlfriend is a Catholic, and is a postmodern writing and this man thinking and going to his work and see different in the wallet and uh, don't anybody kill this joker about thinking and i love this book what was the last book you read i don't remember maybe the last book i don't remember i'm walking and don't uh, Reading any book? Don't remember. Maybe it's a, it's a from computer science. Hossein was back home in Iran, an electrical engineer with two degrees. Last but not least, we have a few words from Masha Loikina. She became internationally famous when, in 2012, she and her feminist punk collective performed a song they'd written called "Punk Prayer: Mother of God, Chase Putin Away." in Moscow's central cathedral. You may remember the images and video footage of women in colourful balaclavas jumping around, punching the air in front of an altar. Masha and another member of Pussy Riot were arrested and imprisoned for two years in so-called corrective labour camps, charged with hooliganism. Released early, they continue to fight on behalf of feminist, LGBTQ rights and for freedom of speech in Russia. In a future podcast, we'll present the extended interview, but for now, I wanted to ask her why she was here in Calais. What brought her here now? So I uh, arrived uh, to Calais refugees camp uh, with uh, Belarus Free Theatre to help uh, refugees um, in the theatre way because we all think that artists should collaborate and stand for the rights of of the refugees because um, these people actually have the same problems and same goals as European community. They ran from their countries because they didn't feel safety and now in Europe uh, because of their ISIS problem and because of their terrorist attacks uh, in Europe also exists a problem of safety. So we really see the fields uh, where refugees and Europe can unite and we want to we want to push it forward. A lot of this that you're talking about comes from a basis of a belief in creative expression and of course creative expression is what first made Pussy Riot famous and into a lot of trouble. Can you explain to me why you believe that creative expression is fundamental? Mm, I think it's very simple. Every person needs uh, to be heard and uh, to express him or herself. And creativity 
is the thing which you know provide this expression it works um, stronger if you are um, living near any fence like if you're living in prison in psychiatrical clinic or refugees camp any you know place which is separated from other world and people from quasi other world think that you know this is a special place and people are there kind of special but in you know in reality they are not so a wish to express um, ourselves there is much stronger so that's why it's um, important to do creative things uh, inside inside camps also. Masha gave me a fascinating interview, going into detail about her reading habits when in the labour camp. And there'll be more from Masha and Natalia in a few weeks from now on the Guardian Books podcast. And so I left the camp. It's a strange sensation to say goodbye to people when you have in your pocket a small booklet of pages that gives you permission to step onto a train whilst the likes of Hossein, Brewer and Mohammed can't. And it goes without saying that these frequently jolly souls were most nights risking their lives to make the same journey. Since making this podcast, the entire landscape of the jungle has changed. The threat of eviction, the entire southern part of the camp to be bulldozed with merely hours' notice, finally took place, evicting over a thousand refugees, many of them unaccompanied children, demolishing churches, mosques, and, yes, the library and theatre. I was still missing Mohammed's poem that I'd mentioned earlier, and had written to ask Joe for it. He texted, It's hellish here, and never managed to send across the poem. But the important thing is that it's been written at all, because it's believed that the art created by people like Mohammed matters. It's that recognition of the value of people that resonates like a clarion bell from the Calais jungle. No one chooses to be in a place like that. If I don't have a problem, I don't come in here to dying. In my country, people and government break my heart. And in here, people and governments breaking my breaking heart. Thank you to everyone who featured and helped in the making of this podcast. And thank you to Abdul from Afghanistan. In a dark and cold tent, he made me a cup of hot, sweet, milky tea from a cauldron over an open fire, sat me down, took off his gloves, and played me these folk songs from Afghanistan. It's his music illustrating the podcast. Next week, we'll be back in London and delving deep into the most mystifying of modern tomes, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Join us next week to look at whether, 20 years on, this 1,000-page novel retains its power to shock and entertain. Until then, thank you for listening and goodbye. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.